Welcome to this week's podcast of Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King, I knew I was going to blow these words, Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials and Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. Their letter was sent by the hand of Elasa the son of Japhoth, and Gomorrah, the son of Hilkah, and Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease. Instead, seek the welfare of the city. Where I have sent you into exile, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you all my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Hey, let me pray. Father, be our peace. You are the Lord of peace. Father, you have called us to live for such a time as this. Father, you've given us the relationships that we have, the resources that we have to glorify you. And so, Father, in this moment, through the power of the Spirit, would you reveal those edges in our life that you want to address? Not simply what this message is addressing, but through the power of the Spirit, Father, would you come in? Would we humbly surrender and say, your authority, your empowering presence, guide us, heal us, lead us, and may we walk out of this place recognizing Jesus is Lord. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jeremiah is speaking to the Israelites. They're in a bad place, bad day, horrible experience. 
Babylonians have come, wiped out their cities, wiped out their schools, their businesses, brought them into captivity. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. He's still back there. He's speaking to the Israelites that are in this horrible experience. And he's saying, guys, this is how I want you to engage in a culture that disagrees with you. This is how I want you to engage in a culture that worships false gods, filled with sexual immorality, filled with injustice, filled with racial strife, filled with using resources in ways that God hasn't designed. I want you to engage in this city in a way that reflects who I am and reflects who you are and your role in the world. Jeremiah is speaking to a community that is in a land that doesn't value what they value. In the United States, we are the minority. We live in a community, it's pluralistic, many religions, many values, many ways of life. What Jeremiah is saying to Israel is something that we need to take and apply to the way that we engage in our own country today. Now, before we jump back into Jeremiah 29, a couple things about where we are. First, Jesus to his disciples seemed very unpatriotic. I don't know if you realize this. Jesus to his disciples seemed very unpatriotic. The things that he said about Israel, the things that he fought for, the people he spent time with, the issues that he supported, they looked at it and said, Jesus, you don't make any sense as somebody who's pushing the politics of Israel. Now, what do I mean? First of all, Jesus took disciples and realized these disciples were very politically diverse. Now, they had one thing in common. They hated Rome. They loved Israel. They all were nationalistic, right? But in terms of how they wanted to see Israel prosper, some said, we need to kill people up in this place. We need to start slaughtering some Romans. We need to wipe them out. We need an insurrection. We need to take people out, snipers, all that kind of good stuff. Let's take people down. That's one of Jesus' disciples. Now, others within that were saying, yeah, Rome's bad. Let's separate, guys. Don't hang out with any Romans. Don't eat any Roman food. Don't listen to Roman music. Just step on back. Let's be the Jesus, God kind of people. Don't engage too much. Let's pull back. But yeah, the Romans are bad. And then there were others among Jesus' disciples said, no, let's assimilate. Let's be a part of it. Let's work from the inside. Let's change things. In Jesus' disciples, you had this wide range of political ideas. And Jesus doesn't seem to get it. He's associating with the wrong people. He's calling a centurion one of the, yeah, that's it. Anyway, somebody's screaming outside. The greatest faith in all of Israel comes from a centurion. Jesus, you're not getting it right. You're not doing it right. You're not loving the right people. You're not supporting the right politics. You're not walking the right banners. You're off. Jesus doesn't fit neatly into our political boxes. If he didn't when he was supporting Israel, then we have to be careful when we bring Jesus into our politics, that we're not leading with politics and kind of transforming Jesus, but taking Jesus and allowing him to address our political ideologies. Jesus just doesn't fit that neatly. We need to allow him to speak into our political ideologies and hopes, first thing. Second thing, and we know this, this isn't a surprise, we're living in a very politically divided time. And that political division has also influenced the church. Now, that has not always been the case. If you've been around for a while, you know that we were not always that divided as Christians. There was a book that I read, and as I told you, I've read about 10 books on this subject, but one was by a guy named Ross Douthat. 
and he wrote a book called Bad Religion. And Ross Douthat is a Christian. He's also a political columnist, analyst for the New York Times. And he wrote this book, and basically what he talks about is how the church has gotten engaged in politics in a way that's clouded the gospel, and it's impacted our message and our witness in the world. And, and I want to share a quote with you that was helpful for me. He was talking about how politics has influenced the church, and he said in the 50s and the 60s that Christianity was political, but it really wasn't partisan. And he said, and I quote, Mid-century Christianity has been political, meaning the 50s, the 60s, without appearing overtly partisan. Now, sometimes its leaders spoke for the American consensus, and sometimes they critiqued it. But in either case, they tended to transcend, or at least it seemed to transcend, the liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican divide. This approach bore impressive fruit with the civil rights movement. As we have seen, across the 50s, the early 60s, Martin Luther King's movement found a way to transform itself from a countercultural cause into a consensus position without being associated with a single party or fraction. This was possible in part because it was perceived as a moral, as a religious movement, first and foremost. And here's the key phrase, with a politics rooted in theology rather than the other way around. A politics that starts with what we believe and moves out into our politics rather than simply taking our politics and influencing what we believe. As we move out into this time, this intense division, what is influencing us? Because the fact is, in a politically diverse climate, we are going to idolize certain political ideas and parties. When you idolize something, what happens, when you think something is essential to the point that if, it's, if it doesn't win, if it doesn't work out, everything's going to fall apart, that's, that's worship. When you set your fear on something, your anxiety on something, you elevate something. And what happens, when you elevate something, you always demonize something else. And when you demonize something else, you tear others down. And what happens is this word self-righteousness sets in. What's self-righteousness? I know better than you. I am better than you. And therefore, I can look down on others based on how they vote or how they engage or who they are. And when we elevate a political party, we demonize the other party. And what that does is it takes all ability to actually do something together away. That's something that has to be torn down. We have to begin to see each other as we are. And when we elevate things to such a degree that it keeps us from conversation, when it keeps us from loving one another, from putting the interest of others, when it causes the entire New Testament to go out the window and we can behave however we want, that's not the church. And, and I'm not saying these issues are not important or we shouldn't engage passionately, but when our political ideologies get to the point that we can just ignore everything Jesus said and just simply be a jerk, that's not the church. And these are important issues. And there are times certainly where their passions come out, but we have to gauge, engage in a way that reveals what we ultimately believe, that our politics needs to be informed by our theology. And when we mess up, guys, the best thing you can do is just say, hey, I messed up. Got too excited, yelled a little loud. Because see, that's grace, that's forgiveness. It reveals our God. So let's jump into Jeremiah 29. Let's discover how can we engage in a culture that may value something different than what we value, may even say at times that what we believe is evil or wrong. 
How do you engage in a culture like that that may not want the best for you? Let's jump back in. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. So here's where he starts. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet wrote and sent from Jerusalem. So he's still in Jerusalem to, notice the language, the surviving elders of the exile, meaning many didn't. Many in this transition lost their lives to the priests, to the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The Babylonians come in. Nebuchadnezzar is an evil, ruthless king. They drag them off into captivity. And Jeremiah is now saying, here's how God wants you to engage. And realize within Israel, there are false teachers. They're teachers that are arguing against what God says. They're teachers that are saying, no, we need to support ourselves. We need to fight for ourselves. We need to make sure we are good. We're not gonna worry about the Babylonians. They're the bad guys, just like Jesus. Remember, Jesus walking around. Jesus, centurion, bad guy. Leper, leper, the guy with leprosy, bad guy. All these people you're hanging out with, you're not supposed to do that, Jesus. Likewise, Jeremiah is engaging, and there's these false prophets, and they're saying, hey, Israel, don't talk to that guy. Don't talk to this person. Don't deal with that person. And God is speaking to them, and he's addressing the way that they're engaging. And the first thing he's going to do is we're going to see two things that are wrong and one thing that's right. There's two ways that Israel was engaging that could lead in the wrong direction, and there's one way they need to engage that can lead them in the right direction. And here's the first mistake that we can make and that Israel can make. And it's the word assimilation, assimilating into the culture. Now, this was the goal of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were wise. They were smart. They figured it out. I don't know if you remember. Remember when the Israelites that were taken to Egypt? You know, let my people go, Moses and all those stories. Well, the Egyptians thought the best way to destroy a people is to oppress them and put them into slavery. Well, what happens when you enslave a people? <laughs> they like to rise up. They like to fight back. And what the Egyptians found, and they kept getting beaten. These people kept rising up. People just rise up. They get that. It doesn't take many people to start rising up. And so the Egyptians realized, hey, this doesn't work. The Babylonians are watching. They're like, hey, let's not take that direction. Instead of simply enslaving or destroying, let's assimilate them. Let's go wipe out this country and bring all these people and educate them, give them jobs. Get them to work in our industries and in our houses of worship. Let's take them and assimilate them into our culture. And that's what's happening in verse 2. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother. So here's a king, here's a queen. The eunuchs, the officials of Judea and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The first people to go were the culture shapers. The culture shapers were brought into Babylon and they started investing into them. One of those, this guy, Daniel, if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was also taken into captivity in Babylon. And when Daniel got there, they're like, hey, Daniel, you're a good guy. But can we give you a nickname? How's that sound? Let's call you Belshazzar, which means my God is Bel. Now, Daniel worshiped Yahweh. And he was obedient to that. But they gave him this nickname. And they also said, Daniel, you're a great guy. We want to send you to Harvard, Princeton, Yale. We want to send you to the best organizations. We want to educate you because we care about you so much that we want to make sure you have the best education possible. What was the goal? To take Daniel, to cause him to lose his identity, to lose his values, and then see one, two generations, maybe just one, they're going to forget who you are. You're going to forget your role in the world, 
and you're simply going to assimilate into the culture and forget why God had called you out and he had chosen you. That's an easy path for us today. Why? Because we love our country, as most Christians do. I mean, I think Kenyan Christians love Kenya. French Christians probably love France. American Christians love America. We're patriotic. We love our country. We love our songs. We love our flag. We love to engage. We love this land. We want it to be fruitful. But sometimes you can love something so much that you don't see how you're assimilating. And it's causing the values that God is teaching us and wants us to live out to be hidden or not to be as disclosed or as revealed as he wants it to be. The first mistake that we can easily make is simply just to assimilate and to be a part of the culture, but not evaluate the culture according to what we believe. That's the first way. Now, the second way is we don't assimilate, but we just separate. We take care of us. It's called separatism or tribalism. Now, this is what the false prophets wanted. Because, see, they were patriotic. The Babylonians are the bad guys. We're the good guys. Guys, let's separate. Don't hang out with them. Don't listen to Babylonian music. Don't eat that Babylonian food. Don't listen to Babylonian TV. Let's be totally different from them. Don't know them. When you see them, smile, right? But on the inside, ugh, hate that guy. What a horrible culture. What a miserable people. Look at the gods they worship, right? What jokes. What a bunch of imbeciles, idiots. See, on the outside, you're accommodating. The inside, there's disdain, there's pride, there's rejection. And so you see this in verse 8. For the Lord of hosts says, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets, your diviners who are among you, deceive you. What were they doing? They were preaching a patriotic message. Protect us. Be for us. He was saying, do not listen to their dreams. For it's, verse 9, a lie that they're prophesying to in my name. I didn't send them, guys, declares the Lord. Who are some of these guys? Chapter 28. There's this guy, Hananiah, and here's what Hananiah said. Chapter 28, verse 11. Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. Oh, yeah. That's a great political message. What's he saying? Nebuchadnezzar, you're gone, buddy. Our God's going to kill you. He's going to pop you. You're out of here. You're, you're impressed by your power. God's going to wipe you out. Guys, listen, two years, it's over. Don't worry about this. Don't, don't assimilate, separate. God's going to destroy these evil people. See, that's the same thing the disciples wanted. Destroy the evil people. Destroy the people who are different than us. Destroy the people who think differently, who value differently, who oppress us. Let's just wipe them out. That's not the heart of God. Why? Otherwise, we'd be gone. We would be gone. I don't know if any of you are here because you had moral perfection in your blood. Or you lived a life of moral purity in your words, in your actions. I certainly didn't. The reason I'm accepted by God is because Jesus was cast out. See, as we engage, we engage under the banner of grace. We, we raise the banner of the lordship of Christ because we're accepted, not because we've done it right, but he's done it right. And we surrender our knee to his lordship and his empowering presence. And the first thing, the second thing we see is they're saying, hey, don't separate. Don't completely disengage. Don't pull away. Because here's what separatism, here's what assimilation says. Assimilation says, 
I'm gonna use this nation, I'm gonna use this city to make a name for me. I gotta prove myself. This is Babel all over again. So I'm gonna assimilate into the culture, why? So I can get mine. Now, separatism says the exact same thing, just a different path. It says, I'm gonna pull away, I'm gonna distance myself, but when it advantages me, I'm gonna use the city. I'm gonna use the nation. I'm gonna use the resources to make a name for myself. Both of those paths are exhausting. Why? Because you're constantly having to prove that you're good enough. You don't know who you are because you're not under the grace of God. Assimilation uses the city. Separatism stands back, disdain for the city, but hey, I'll use these resources because it's gonna benefit my tribe. Neither path is the way of God because see, neither path allows us to understand our identity comes from God. The grace of God says, you're not accepted because you got it right. You're accepted because God has created you. Now he's redeemed you through the blood of Jesus and he welcomes you as an adopted son or daughter. We live as a church under the banner of grace. God in Jeremiah's time was trying to get that into the Israelites' head. You guys live under the banner of grace and what's happening to you is bad. Listen, this is bad, it's not good. This is not a good day, but I want to use you to reveal who I am to a people that hate you. How do you do that? Don't pull away, don't come all the way in. Instead, what he's gonna say in verses five through seven is probably one of the most shocking messages in the Old Testament. Now to us, we're like, hey, totally makes sense. You know, love people, care for people, all this stuff, sacrifice, yeah, that's cool. But back then it would have made zero sense, certainly if you had a very political heart that said Israel has to be first. So let's jump back in, verse four. Watch this. And he said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles. Now notice the language. I'm still in control. From whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I'm at work. I know bad things have come. I haven't abandoned you, but I wanna use this time. Realize, Christians, we are all exiles. Now what's an exile? An exile who is, is someone who's living in a country that's not their home. Now certainly we love the United States, we love our citizenship, but when we, we bow our knee to Jesus, we become citizens of heaven. We're an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth, which means we have a dual citizenship. But our citizenship in heaven has, has a greater authority over our lives in terms of how we engage. And therefore, a Christian that is Chinese living in China He's an exile. He lives according to the values of the kingdom of God, the values of the government that's to come when King Jesus shows up. He lives according to those values today, even though Jesus isn't elected yet and he's not in office. He's, we're already operating under his authority because that's what we do. Our citizenship comes from another nation and we live within a nation that doesn't value what we value, we're the minority, doesn't worship the same gods or pursue the same path, Instead, we are in exile in our own nation. That's where we are as Christians. We live as an exile in our own country. So how do you do that well? You don't assimilate, you don't separate. Instead, he says, verse five, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Notice, multiply there, don't decrease. Don't pull away. Instead, verse seven, this is the key. Seek 
the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find your welfare. This is an evil city, an evil nation. And yet God says, I want you to bless them. I want you to be generous. But they hate us, God. I know that. I know that. I'm your God. Your identity doesn't come from their hate. doesn't come from their rejection. It comes from me, guys. Remember, you're walking in my identity. This is your role in the world. You're going to be rejected. Just as Jesus was persecuted, so you shall be persecuted. And he says, I want you to live for the welfare of the city. Now, the word welfare there is not just welfare. It's shalom. It is a power-packed word that doesn't simply mean just the benefit it means human flourishing in every aspect of what human flourishing looks like. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the new Jerusalem, the new city that comes out of heaven and transforms the new heavens and the new earth. It is everything that God is and everything that human beings are supposed to be. That means I want you to benefit them socially. I want you to benefit their health care. I want you to benefit their education. I want you to do taxes in a way that benefits the community. I want you to vote in ways that bring blessing and benefit to others that may disadvantage you but may advantage them. I want you to care about the community. I want you to care about the infrastructure. I want you to care about people that do not agree with you and actually live lifestyles that I've rejected. I want you to live for the shalom of the community. This is how God's people live. And it should sound familiar because it's called the Sermon on the Mount. What did Jesus say again? Pray for those who persecute you. Love those. If they ask us to go one mile, go two miles. Now, listen, there's wisdom in this. We don't just take a command and, and bring that into life. Right? We have the spirit. We have wisdom. We engage in a complex, nuanced world. But we move out in the world because we know our role. We know our king. We know we are under grace. And so we move out in a way that blesses others, even if they reject us. Church, is anyone doing that? I don't know if that's how the political parties are doing it. I love you guys. I know you disagree with me. I mean, politicians, right, they don't have nuance. They can't. They wouldn't get elected. Politicians don't have nuance. They have to be black and white. They have to describe things the way they do so that you would be excited enough to engage. That's how they get people going, right? If they really explain the complexity of the issues, we'd turn off the TV because that's not what we want. We want banners. We want excitement. They're not nuanced. But as the church, we have to move out into the world with wisdom and with the spirit to engage in a way that brings shalom and blessing to our community. Seek, if you want to memorize one verse, verse 7, seek the welfare of the city. How do we engage in politics? Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of Colorado. Seek the welfare of our nation. Seek the prosperity of those who sent you into captivity and pray to the Lord for their blessing. This is God's calling upon our lives in terms of how we engage. And again, it looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. So if you jump to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. Notice the language. You are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What are the good works we do? They're the good works that bless the community. 
It's acts of service. When, when Jeremiah says, work for the welfare, Jesus is saying, work for the welfare. Do things in a way that bring blessing to those who disagree with you, who reject you, who do not stand on the same side as you. And notice, you should be a city set on a hill, which means we are to be a city within a city. What's a city? A city has an economy. They have a way of doing money. They have a way of doing marriage. They have a way of doing sex. They have a way of doing community. They have a way of doing politics. And it's very different than another city, right? Every city's different. The city of the kingdom of God is a city within the city reflecting the character of God and how we do things, which should be different than the way the city does things. Why? Because we're exiles. The city doesn't value what we value. Even as great as our country is, our country doesn't value the same things we value. And so we are to be a city within the city that reflects the God that we worship. And the God that we worship, realize, is the one who came not to Babylon. He came to Jerusalem. He came to his own. He came as an insider. He was treated like an outsider. He came and he didn't have the right political message. He didn't have the right message for the nation. And what did they do? They cast him outside the city. What's that an image of? That's sin. See, when you cast somebody outside the city, it says, you're so bad, you're so miserable, you can't even be with us. Jesus, who is of heaven, of Jerusalem, was cast outside the city. Why? Church, so that we could be brought in. So that we could be brought in. Not because we had it right, but because Jesus is right, and through faith in Christ, we are made right through the gospel. This is our message. This is the God that we worship. So how do we do this just practically? You know, when you read throughout Scripture, you're going to find these two cities named often, even in the New Testament. You'll see Babylon mentioned. Paul mentions it in, in Romans. Peter mentions Babylon. Because, see, Babylon eventually becomes a symbol for the city of earth. Jerusalem becomes a symbol for the city of heaven. Now, the city of earth is run by pride. You are what you have. You are what you've done. It's a city of exhaustion. Because if you're constantly trying to prove yourself, you're never settled. You're never resting. You're never content. You always have to have more, do more, have more. That's what our city does. And our city is tired. I'm tired. Why? Because you're constantly saying, what I do is what I am. What I, what I have is what I am. That's what the city runs on. The city of heaven, again, runs under grace. We are what God says that we are. And so the city of man runs on this principle. Your life should benefit mine. That's the city of earth. What is the city of God? My life to serve yours. What is the city of earth? You belong to me. You're going to benefit me. The city of heaven is, no, my life to serve yours. Because ultimately, we're reflecting the life that Christ has left for us. See, as we summarize this, how do we begin to do that? There's a a professor named Bruce Walke, he's a brilliant Old Testament scholar, got his PhD at Dallas Theological Seminary. He wrote a book on Proverbs, and in that Proverbs, you discover who lives in the city of heaven and who lives on the city of earth. And often, you see the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. And see, the righteous, he describes this way. He said, and I quote, the righteous are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves, to advantage the community. The commandments of God often put us at a disadvantage, doesn't it? Love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute. Forgive. How many times should I forgive? I mean, enough just to benefit me, right? No, Peter, 
77 times. Do not consider your own interests. Consider the interest of others. What is Scripture calling to us to? Often to disadvantage ourselves so that we can advantage others. That is a summary of the righteous. What are the wicked? How, do they, how are they described? They are those who are willing to advantage themselves, to disadvantage the community. So who is it we should advantage? You know, Jesus in Matthew 25, he made it pretty simple. He said, when I come back, guys, there's certain people I want you to be watching out for. I'm going to give you a list. There's a certain group of people that you need to care for, you need to be aware of, you need to know their condition because you're here to protect them. And in Matthew 25, 40, and the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. Now, church, who are the least of these? Certainly they are the unborn those that do not have a voice. We should defend the unborn. And we should stand with the mothers and the fathers that are in circumstances and situations that cause them to seek out those results. Certainly, we should stand for the poor. More than anything else in the Old Testament, I realize this, wickedness is contrasted with poverty. Not that poverty is righteous, but often it's contrasted, meaning God identifies with the poor. Jesus said, blessed are the poor. He said poor in spirit, but in Luke he said poor. Why? The poor know they need. They know they have needs as the church. We should be speaking up for the poor. You know who God also says we should identify with? The sojourner, the immigrant. Those who do not have a home, the refugee, those who are seeking asylum. It is the role of our government to protect borders. It's the role of Christians to say who we should be protecting from and who we shouldn't. We have to speak up. We have to speak up also. Who are the least of these? You know, I want my kids to have a great education. I mean, all parents do, right? All, All of us want our kids to do well. They want to go to the best schools. Well, if I'm just simply advantaging myself and I'm not concerned about the education of someone else, that's not the way of the righteous, it's the way of the wicked. I should be concerned about the education of others. Whether my kids are homeschooled, hey, I'm homeschooled, I don't care what's going on. No, we care. (laughs) We care. Why? We want to bless the city. We want to be a benefit. Health care. We should want people to have access to health care. Now, how do we do that? I have no clue, guys. Don't ask me. Don't look to me on that. I don't know. I don't know how that works. That's not my place. But we should care. We should care about the needs of others. And you know what? We should also care not just about our nation but the world. We live in one of the most prosperous, powerful nations in the world. And what happens here often affects the rest of the world. And if we're caring for the least of these, I need to care for my brothers and sisters in Kenya and Africa South America. I should care about how our policies impact the rest of the world. That's a lot to care about, isn't it? It's a lot. And yet we have the Spirit, and God is calling us to care for those that we can stand on behalf of to speak. So how does this apply to how we vote? Three things, just quickly. Character matters. First thing, when I look at a candidate, character matters. Does this character, does this candidate have the character to do this job? Second, competence. 
I think all of us want to hire people more than just being Christians that are competent. I want a doctor to work on me that's competent. I don't care what you believe. Just be competent when you cut me open. We want competence. Can you do the job? Does this person have character? Are they competent? And then finally, platforms and policies. We should investigate. Are these biblical? Do they line up with Scripture? And then second, do they actually bring about the results that, they bring, that they're promising? Because it's one thing to be biblical, it's important, but are they actually going to result in something that's going to lead to human flourishing? Now, how do you evaluate those? Which one has more weight? You get to decide. That's not my job. My job is that character matters, character influences the nation, competency matters, competency to do a job. And then finally, we have to investigate what does a person stand for? How does that line up with Scripture? And then realize when it's actually working itself out, it's complicated. I mean, often it is. What influences changes in our culture? It's multifaceted. And we need to stop just listening to a platform and sometimes looking at the results. What actually changes people's lives? What, what increases education? What reduces abortions? What actually allows for human flourishing in our cities? If we just trust platforms and we don't investigate the results and find out what's really going on in our communities, we've got to investigate because as Christians, God wants us to bless the city, which means we have to be informed. We have to wrestle with these issues and press in. Why? Because ultimately, that's what Jesus has done. The reality is he could have stayed where he was, had a much better life than descending into our world. What did Jesus do? Let me read this in Hebrews 12, uh, 13. Then we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus. What did Jesus do? So Jesus, chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city. And they're speaking in Jerusalem. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus was cast out so that we could be brought in. And as the church, it's our role to move into a world that is going to reject us, is going to disagree with us, but to engage in a way that reflects the gospel, reflects what we ultimately believe, to ask the questions, how am I loving God in this moment? How am I loving my neighbor? You know, the entire Bible is political. You don't have to go to one verse because it's all under the banner, Jesus is the Lord. You want to know how to engage that person who's different than you? Read Ephesians. Read Proverbs. Just ask, Lord, how can I engage right now? I, I want to surrender to your authority and empowering presence. Holy Spirit, come into my life and guide me. And then just read Scripture. What does it say? Because every page is going to tell you how you need to engage, how you need to care, how you need to move out to the world. It's all under the banner that Christ is.